I was kidnapped and then my husband was attacked by a suicide bomber. And then after that, my infant daughter and I were evacuated. You are now listening to The Living Numbers and Tony Rambles, 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 and The Living Numbers Podcast. All right, here we go. This is <laughs> The Living Numbers Podcast, and I am your host, Tony Rambles. This is the place where everyone is interesting. As long as you ask the right questions. Today, I have someone who is very special, very accomplished, and just an all out amazing person. So, here we go for our introduction. Hailing from Groton, Massachusetts. I'm, I know I'm saying that like totally wrong, but we're going to go with it. She's earned, she earned her first degree from Oberlin College and now has a doctorate from University of Birmingham. My assumption is that these degrees reside in the writing field. I'm sure Jenny will correct me once I finish. <laughs> Jennifer has worked as a journalist, reporter, writer, and editor for various magazines and newspapers. She helped launch This Week magazine in 2001 and became editor-in-chief of the Yemen Observer with no management experience. More on that later. Her creative works have won numerous awards, including the William Faulkner William Wisdom Creative Writing Competition and the Philip McMath Post Publication Book Award. Whoever named these, they clearly did not want me to be successful. (laughs) She's been featured in the New York Times, Irish National Radio, CBS Radio, Vogue UK, The Rumpus, which I don't know what that is, but it sounds important, and many, many more. Author, speaker, teacher, I present the gleeful, exuberant, and extravagantly creative Jennifer Style. That was the most fabulous introduction I could have hoped for, (laughs) although I must clarify one thing, just because I don't want to take credit for something that's not entirely done yet, is I am almost done with my PhD, but not you know, quite. <laughs> I'm this I heard it on another one and I, I didn't get the master's. I, I saw you went back to New York for graduate school, but I didn't yeah. get the school. So I'm like trying to piece yeah. it together. And I heard uh, University of Birmingham, but I didn't hear like what the degree was. I'm like, you know what? Let's just roll with it. So um, it was, it took it took some time, like I said before, trying to get you down to just this very short period of time. But we're going to start here. And our first number is 1997. Now, these two things will seemingly be unrelated, but trust me, I'll tie them back. In. So around 1997, one of my favorite music groups was formed, The Diplomats. However, <laughs> that's with uh, Cameron, Joel Santana, Jim Jones. I don't know if you're familiar. It doesn't even matter. They started and in, in, they formed in, in New York, ironically, here. I think you know where I'm going with this. Uh, you actually became a real diplomat in real life. Uh, you married a, a diplomat from the UK. I'll let you tell the whole story. Uh, but 
we're going to start here. What was your, your favorite part of being kind of in that bubble, right? Life is not the same anymore. So how does that happen? Go. Oh, the life of a diplomat. Um, first of all, my husband's the only true diplomat. I am a hanger on. Um, <laughs> and we met in Yemen. So I was already in Yemen running a newspaper and mm-hmm. ran into him at the French ambassador's house on Bastille Day, one year, 2007. And I had known the previous British ambassador who'd been a really good source for me. And I was really annoyed that I had to meet a new British ambassador. I thought, oh God, really? I have to, I have to cultivate a whole nother British ambassador and get to know them. Uh, you know, mm-hmm, I was mm-hmm. um, clearly, I liked this one quite a lot. Um, so we ended up married now. Um, not, not immediately it took us a while, but, uh, but, but moving from, my own house, I lived in the old city of Sana'a, which is the most beautiful city I've ever seen in my entire life, mm. still to this day. Um, so I had a, my own house there surrounded by Yemeni friends and I kind of ran an unofficial hostel. I had people coming and going, like I'd run into stray people on the street who had nowhere to live and I'd be like, come stay with me. Um, <laughs> I mean, I was having a great time. And then when I moved in with Tim, everything changed. So suddenly, mm. I'm living in this very grand residence, very grand. Um, and there are five staff members there. There's a cleaner and a cook. And yes, I mean, these things, I mean, I'd never, I never had enough money to, to have a, a cleaner of any kind, you know, ever. Um, I, you know, I barely made enough to survive. I didn't have a savings account. And so it was incredibly <laughs> bizarre to me. And I felt so weird about the whole thing. I mean, Mm. I was in love with him and that's all that really mattered. Um, So I was pretty focused on that. And of course it was exciting, you know, and a great privilege. Um, But I was also, you know, Emma Bett, the cook uh, would say, what do you want me to make, make you for lunch? And I would say, no, 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 nothing. I'll just make myself. (laughs) Don't make me anything. And finally, like after a couple of weeks of this, Tim finally said to me, you know, we do pay them. Like you have to let them do their job. This is their job. They're right. paid, you know, we treat them nicely. So you, like, <laughs> you have to actually let them do their job. Um, but it, it, it was a really huge adjustment. It wasn't something I was used to at all. And it also, it takes a lot of getting used to, to have um, essentially strangers in your home all day long. So no more walking around naked. Oh um, man. You know, I don't know. I remember one time, I mean, this is, <laughs> this is kind of silly, but one time our cleaner, Alam, who was wonderful. And of course we had a cleaner. So that in itself was wonderful, but she was also a really wonderful woman. But one time she was dusting my study and I told, I'd essentially said, please, you know, don't clean my desk because my desk is where all my writing and my yes. papers and it doesn't a system. Look, yeah i mean no one else would think of it as the system they think of it as a pile of rubble but for me i knew where everything was and i was doing the final edits on my very first book and alan somehow managed to knock over 450 printed pages that were not numbered oh um onto the floor 
And um, I had to spend like a whole workday putting them back together again. And I, um, but I can't get cross. You know, she was trying to clean my office. You can't get cross with someone who's doing something right. for you. Um, but at the same time, I, w- I, I was cross inside because I was like, oh, it's going to take me so long. <laughs> my workday away from me, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, but then how much time was she saving me by cleaning? Oh, I can go back. Man. And okay. Sort, you know, <laughs> two questions here. Okay. If you had to choose one, would you rather have somebody that cleans or somebody that cooks? Um, gosh, that's hard. Yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> Me and my wife have had this discussion many, many times. Yeah, I don't like doing either of those things. Um, uh, maybe someone who cleans, mm-hmm. perhaps because I'm I have somewhat eccentric eating habits and. I feel better when I kind of control what I'm eating, maybe. Okay. Um, For me, I'm always cook, cook. Because cleaning is like the same thing every time. Like I can do that. But when we're talking about food, you don't want to eat the same stuff all the time. And I am not a creative chef. Like I just want to get food inside of me. I don't want to have to figure it out and season it the bit. No. Give me somebody who can cook. I can clean like all day and I clean well too. I always take the chef, always. Yeah, well, I suppose, I mean, that that would be good. But at the on the other hand, like vacuuming is just, I don't know. It's noisy. No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so my second one was, I think you kind of answered both of these, but I'll ask them directly. What was your favorite part about having these people around, like in any way? And then what was your least favorite part? I know you mentioned how you could walk around the home. I know that's a big thing for me. And then you also mentioned having somebody to clean. And so that's always great. Well, so, I mean, the best thing about the the very privileged position I, I've ended up in is it's not so much, actually, it didn't even occur to me that the house and staff would be and it, my favorite part, because the best part of it is being able to move to countries that you know absolutely nothing about and getting to learn new languages, new cultures, make friends from everywhere on the planet. And like that for me is the, the best part of, of our lives is that we have the great privilege of being able to spend three or four years in each country. And that's enough time to learn a language, usually to make close friends, to get to get much get a much deeper understanding of a culture than we'd ever get as a tourist. Mm-hmm. Um, I find it quite unsatisfying to, to just dip into a country for a week or so. It just, it's just too superficial. Um, and so we have the chance to do that. So on the downside, I would say that being forcibly separated from my family has happened twice. So the mm-hmm. first time So when I was in Yemen, I was kidnapped and then my husband was attacked by a suicide bomber. And then after that, my infant daughter and I were evacuated. Now, Mm -hmm. I hadn't planned to raise my infant daughter alone, but we were forced to leave the country um, and given no help finding anywhere to live. Um, And so we moved to Jordan because we wanted to be close to Tim. But, you know, I was alone with my six-month-old to 10-month-old daughter for four and a half months while Tim finished his posting in Sanaa. And that was tough Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. I I didn't want him to, I mean, she was, 
saying her first word and doing all sorts of, you know, those are the kind of things you want to share with someone. And um, especially Tim, I mean, in diaper changing, that's the kind of thing you want to share with someone. Um, Oh, definitely. Definitely. 100%. Yeah. But I mean, worse than that was that during COVID at the start of COVID, March, 2020, my daughter and I, she was then 10, were evacuated from Uzbekistan because Mm -hmm. foreign office wanted us near British medical care. Now, of course, this was when London was the epicenter of the pandemic. Um, And we did not want to leave. You know, Theo wanted to stay there. I wanted to stay there. We could isolate really easily in Uzbekistan. Mm. Um, But the foreign office was unrelenting. And they said, I'm sorry, you have to leave. And we said, well, our permanent home is in France. Could we go live in our own home in France? And they said, no, we won't pay for your evacuation if you don't go to London. And we said, but we don't have anywhere to live there. And anyway, what ended up happening is we found a flat in the middle of the first lockdown. Um, but my daughter and I were ultimately kept apart from my husband for 11 months. And that wow. was not our, that was not our choice. You know, that we, we were forced to be apart from my husband for 11 months. And that's not something they tell you when you... Mm-mm. When you marry into the the foreign office, they don't say, by the way, there's an off chance that you'll be separated forcibly from your family. And maybe I should have known that. Maybe I was just naive, but I didn't know anything about the British foreign office or any foreign office. How would you? Like, there is no, like, handbook or there's no, like, indeed.com where you could go. (laughs) Right. Wife of a diplomat or a spouse of a diplomat. These are the things that you have to look out for. And so you, you already jumped right into where we were going next. I'm going to make my part short because you have an amazing story when you start talking about Yemen and going overseas and living and how all that stuff happens. So like our second number is a $1,023 plane ticket. I wrote first class for the first time over this past summer because I missed my flight because they wouldn't let us get on a flight like 45 minutes before the flight left. It was a big thing. Oh, it was the absolute worst, but my dad came through, shout out to my pops. And he was like, man, just find a flight, get up here. Cause it was my cousin's wedding. So, and I was looking, I'm like, wait, this is first class. Like the seats are bigger. That's cool. But it's not like how you see on the movies. <laughs> We're like, it's this whole totally separate place. It's almost like the lighting is brighter in there. And there's people with like white gloves on. It's like, this amazing place. It was really not even separated by a curtain. The curtain was wide open. We just had bigger seats and I think we got a little bit more food. So <laughs> no champagne. Oh, no. I don't drink anyway. It wouldn't have mattered. All right. Well, I don't either anymore. But so. <laughs> in 2006, um, you ended up moving abroad to Yemen and so the question that I wanted to ask here, because I've lived abroad as well. I lived in China for a year, my wife and I, uh, teaching English. I know a year, we would have liked to stay longer, but we ended up coming back. But that's my story. We're here to talk about you, okay? What was the question that you had to answer for yourself before you were like, okay, I'm doing this? And then what early on, like, was there signs early on in life, like in your childhood, that this would be something that you would be interested in, like traveling and living in another country? I think when I was growing up in um, Groton, Massachusetts, I, which is a small town, 
Um, and it's a very beautiful small town, but that I didn't appreciate that when I was small. I just cannot remember a single day when I didn't know I would leave. It was mm. clear to me from birth that I'm getting out of here at my earliest opportunity. And it had nothing to do with it, with my family or the town or anything. It was just, I knew I wanted to be somewhere else. And I think I would have left the, the US much earlier than I did if I could have figured out how to manage it financially. But the fact is that, you know, my first career was in the theater as an actor and I, I never had any money at all. And I thought to live abroad, you had to have money before you did anything. I didn't really understand how you would find a job abroad, which you can, mm -hmm. by the way, you can mm -hmm. find work that will take you abroad. I didn't really know how to do that or what kind of job I could do other than performing. So I just couldn't figure out how to get myself abroad. And then of course I went to graduate school and was burdened with student loan debts. And I, um, <sighs> Listen to one of your previous episodes where I'm forgetting her name, uh, Dr. Acarelli. Yes, yes. It was her. Yes. So she was quite wisely saying, do not go into debt. And I so agree with that because it put me in chains for a very long time. You know, I had $100,000 of student loan debt and it was not worth it. I mean, my husband was paid to go to university here in England. Like, I just. That's, a, that's great. <laughs> I mean, Europeans are like, why do you, why do you Americans pay so much to go to university? And it's just like such a painful question to hear. It's a scam. Yeah. Oh I my know. goodness. Don't I even know. get me started on how much these universities have inflated the price of going yeah. to school. Okay. Just yeah. continue. <laughs> yeah. We're on the same page there. You know, so I was working, so I'm flashing forward to, you know, close to 2006. Um, and I was working for the week, as you mentioned earlier, and I'd been there for five and a half years, which believe it or not, was the longest I'd ever kept a job. I was restless because I was chronically restless and always wanting to move to something different. And I also wanted to do some more of my own writing. But when I was writing for a magazine all day, every day, when I got home, I didn't feel like writing, strangely enough. Um, and so I wanted to do something different. And but this is pure coincidence. Almost everything in my life has happened accidentally or by coincidence. Mm. There wasn't really planning that went into almost any part of my life. So what happened is my, my high school boyfriend, you know, wrote to me and said, how would you like to come to an impoverished Southern Arabian country and train journalists? He didn't even mention the name of the country. Mm. And I wrote back and I said, well, um, I have a job in health insurance and I don't know how I do that. And I need more info. Yeah. <laughs> I need some more information. Like, first of all, tell me the name of the country. Um, and so anyway, so he told me a little bit about Yemen. He came to New York. He talked me into coming over because I said, look, I can't just quit my job. I was terrified of not having a job and not having health insurance all, and all the rest. And I had an apartment, et cetera. Um, so he said, well, could you come over for just your a few weeks and train the journalists at this Yemeni newspaper? Because he'd done a bit of writing for this Yemeni newspaper. And he said, you know, they don't have any training as journalists. They, they, mm. They're trained in English, um, but so they speak English, but they don't know how to be journalists at all. Like they copy things right off the web. They plagiarize everything. They don't know why that's wrong. <laughs> um, they don't know how to source things, you know, stuff like that. So I yeah. said, well, fine, I've got three weeks holiday left. So, um, which was a lot. I, I figured, but I went over there for three weeks and it was a pretty incredible three weeks. I had never been to the Arab world. I had 
never been to a hundred percent Muslim country and mm. everything was unexpected and pretty exciting for me. And most of all, my staff, I mean, the people who would become my staff, the, the reporters mm -hmm. at the Yemen Observer who were about half male and half female, um, they just they treated me first of all like visiting royalty i mean they could not have been kinder and more respectful and more open to learning more ambitious more they i mean they had trillions of questions um and mm -hmm. after working with them for three weeks i thought i can't leave them because first of all they didn't want me to leave um they were all like you can't leave us especially the women they were like you're the only female boss we've ever had. Like wow. you take us seriously as journalists and no one else has ever done that. Like we, we want you to stay and help us become the journalists that we want to be. I mean, we can't just do that in three weeks. And we, we feel like we're just starting out, which I felt as well. And, and so the boss of the paper had come to me and said, look, you know, my reporters mm -hmm. like you, I like what you're doing with the newspaper. Would you come take over as editor in chief? And I said, at first I turned him down because he said, look, I can pay you 12,000 a year. And I thought, what? yeah, exactly. <laughs> I thought, hang on, I could pay more than that in New York. And he said, yes, but you spend more in New York. He said, trust me, you can live on 12,000 a year in Yemen and save money. And he was right. So in that first year out of that 12,000, I saved 5,000 and was able to take friends out to dinner every night. I mean, wow, I know, I know. And it was because Yemen was, I mean, it was inexpensive, especially, you know, if you were making a salary that was above what a lot of the Yemenis were making. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so I was in a privileged position. I mean, I bought my journalists lunch half the time and I had to buy them. This is the thing that made me crazy. My, my boss didn't give them notebooks and pens. Wait, or how you like, get, how can you be a journalist? You don't have anything to write. <laughs> I know. I mean, this is really basic. Like everywhere I've ever worked as a journalist, they gave us notebooks and pens. And the, my boss was not poor. He was very wealthy, mm -hmm. worked for the government, had plenty of money, drove a Mercedes, which he parked right in front of the building wow. and couldn't spend like the, the amount of cents it would take to buy, you know, notebooks for his staff. Um, you ever ask him why? I did. I didn't make much progress in this. You know, I said, you know, why don't they have notebooks and pens and why aren't you paying their cell phone bills? I mean, these are not people who can pay their cell phone bills on what you're mm -hmm. paying them. Um, and again, cell phones are kind of important for doing your uh, job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they were expected to just pay their own phone bills. And I guess he just danced around it. Yeah. He was good at that. Oh, man. And I, I, I found him intimidating, actually. He, he was very intimidating and he made... He wanted, you know, he was very fast speaking and he wanted me to be fast speaking. And anytime I was there, he'd be like, all right, I have seven minutes. Shoot. And I'd be like, right, pens, notebooks, you know, and I'd be all flustered, you know, or I'd be like, I want to ask for more money for my reporters. And right. I don't know. Let's wait. Let's stay there for a second. So okay. these people, right? because I find that when we're able to work with great people, the, I'm not going to say the job doesn't matter but it definitely makes a difference. Like talk about some of the people that you, that you met, like are, are there anything 
is there anything specific that stood out about some of these people that are characteristics that you still remember to this day? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I could go on for the rest of the show about them. Um, So my my star reporter was a woman named Kokob, which means planet in Arabic, um, who was this tiny woman. And she was so ambitious and so dedicated and worked much harder than most people in the newsroom. And Mm. there were times when we'd be close to closing an edition of the newspaper and I wouldn't have a story for the front page or the back page or, you know, various other pages. (laughs) And I would say, Coca, like, Coca, go find us a story, please. I don't have anything to run on this page. And she would go out and she would just find a story. And that is the mark of a good journalist, right? You can find a story. Like she went out, like one day she just went out to the markets, the markets that she's of course been to a million times. And she realized Mm -hmm. that, you know, they were selling parts of endangered animals that they, that were illegal to sell. Um, And so we wrote a story about, you know, how the markets in Yemen were selling these parts of endangered animals and that they should not have been killing these animals. Um, Shout out to Coco. Yeah. She was amazing. And, but even better than that. So at one point our newspaper was taken to court because this was back, I don't know if you remember this, you might be too young, um, but, but when, the, when the cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad came out in the Danish papers and there were all these protests and, um, okay, so the Yemen Observer had run some of these cartoons mm-hmm. about the Prophet Muhammad, who of course is very important to the, the Muslim religion. You know, the Muslims found them offensive, like deeply offensive to their religion um, to the point where they believed a lot of the extremists believed not right. my reporters um but a few extremists believed that the, anyone who ran those should be killed um Whoa. or at very least you know locked up so this group of extremists had accused the former editor who i took over from and the newspaper itself of blasphemy and um and anyway, so we all went to the courthouse and because I happened to be the editor at the time at which they were going to pass down their verdict. Mm-hmm. And so I was nervous because it was only my second month or so on the job. And oh. I thought, I don't want to lose my job. I like just got here. And if, if the I just newspaper- got here, yeah, I just got here. Like I haven't been able to do much. And but if the newspaper closes, all my reporters are going to lose their, their jobs, which is more important because they were less likely to find another job than I was. Um, given the difficulty for women finding jobs in in that economy. Um, right. But Coca, so afterwards, so they basically, they convicted us, but they said that we didn't have to be put to death and that the paper could stay open. We just had to pay a fine. Okay. Um, and, Sounds like a win. <laughs> right? It was a win. I mean, Al-Asadi, Mohammed Al-Asadi, who was the editor before me, um, he was briefly put in a prison cell before we paid the fine. Um, but they, they released him. Um, so that's different. Yeah. And so Kokob, we were, we were all outside and we were interviewing people and people were interviewing us and we were trying to get as much information as possible before we went back to the paper to write the story. And Mm -hmm. Kokob and I were, were doing the story together and she said, Oh, look, there's the men over there that want to kill us. I have to go get a quote. And She's the only one of my reporters, the only one who thought of this and then zipped over there and like talked to the people who wanted, literally wanted her dead. Um, And then she zipped back over to me and she said, um, 
is it okay if I didn't tell them I was a journalist? <laughs> because, you know, I told them like, when you interview someone, you have to explain that you're a journalist. So they know that they're on the record. Yeah. Um, and I said, actually, in this instance, that's fine. Um, no, yeah. Well, will <laughs> take some creative liberty, leave out that part. Yeah. And yeah. Stay alive. Yeah. And so she was, you know, she was amazing. And, you know, when I would go, at lunchtime, I would when I would want to go run an errand and pick up some things at a local store, she would insist on coming with me in case I needed help with the Arabic. And I said, Coco, no, like I'm learning Arabic. I need to be independent. I need to learn these words for myself. Mm. You know, I can say these things. I learned these words. She's like, I'd say, I don't need a mother. I'm old enough to be your mother. And she said, mothering is not an age. Mothering is a feeling. And I am therefore going to mother you. <laughs> Um, I love Coco. She's awesome. She's the best. I mean, we're still really close. Like still, um, she now lives in Istanbul and is working in human rights and supporting women's rights in Yemen and Mm -hmm. um, still being her fireball self. And I'm in fact, I'm I'm still in touch with pretty much everyone I ever worked with. Um, Once you make friends with a, a Yemeni, they are your friend forever. Like Man. forever. They so, are, yeah, loyal. Like compare, because you said this on another uh, a podcast, and I totally agree because I have the same experience. You talked about the U.S. perspective versus the world perspective. And a lot of times, and when people, I'm sure people do the same thing to you when they don't they don't know is when they go, Oh man, you lived in Yemen. Like, like, were there people like trying to kill you? Was it like, was there wars every day? And so when I was in China, it was like, well, is it safe there? Like, is the government trying to come after you? I'm like, guys, I've never felt more safe is more dangerous in America. I'm from Detroit, Michigan. (laughs) That's way more dangerous than where I lived in China. So like compare the two perspectives of you living there and and not just there, but all over the world and compare like how that perspective has changed from coming from the U S growing up here. I mean, you've been East coast, West coast, the big apple compare those two and how they differ. Right. So it's been a, you know, it's a, I'm, I hope I'm still evolving and, and learning. Um, but when I was living in Yemen, that that was the first time it occurred to me that the ways in which the U.S. had shaped mm. me as a human being and the way particularly the U.S. had shaped my assumptions about the world, you know, that I that I made certain assumptions about people or about how government would work or certain assumptions about how you wiped your bottom or certain assumptions about whether or not you oh, could drink tap water or, you know, Everything. Um, everything. Everything is up for question. Everything was up for question. And my reporters did not think the way that I think. They thought mm-hmm. completely differently. You know, first of all, you know, Yemen is pretty much like 99.9% Muslim and their entire life is very faith-based. Um, and that's not how I was raised. Um, and there's a coherence to the culture, despite the many tribes of Yemen. There's a coherence of, they may believe different versions of Islam, but they, they're all Muslim. So on Ramadan, 
the streets will be absolutely empty at the beginning of Ramadan, et cetera. Everyone is eating a date at the same time. You know, I never lived anywhere with such uniformity of religion. Um, really quickly. Okay. Chinese New Year. Yeah. Everything shuts down. Streets are empty. People have left the city. They're back in their, their small hometowns where they're from. So I, like you, kind of saw like this huge shift and everybody did it. The entire country was a part of it. So continue. Go ahead. What part of China were you in? Am I allowed to ask that? Yeah, question? yeah, yeah. I was in Suzhou, which is about an hour west of Shanghai, is known for being like this beautiful city and having all these gardens and stuff. And, you know, I, I didn't know any better. I didn't know this city from the next one. But as you go to right. like bigger cities, you see how different it is. I mean, much like America, but it was it was so crazy. Like you're saying, I don't know, crazy is not the word, but it was so eye opening to see how an entire country could be on the same page in, in something like this. And then like the economics of it. Oh, man, like this could never this would never happen in America because of, you know, our, our capitalistic society. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I mean, the, the, the more countries I go to, the more the more ways I realize there are to to live in this world, mm -hmm. um, ways that I hadn't thought of before I, I landed there. And I think, you know, one memory of Yemen just came back to me when. All right. So when Saddam Hussein died, I was in Yemen. Um, oh, wow. OK. And the Yemenis, at least the Yemenis that I came in contact with, loved Saddam Hussein, loved him Whoa. passionately, passionately. And of course, one of my American assumptions was that Saddam Hussein was evil. He was bad, right? And had to be done away with, um, which may be true, right? So, I mean, certainly a lot of his own people felt that way. But my Yemenis loved him. And when he died, um, there was like national mourning. They, wow. they wept in the, in the office. I mean, the, the men wept, they cried about him. And I'd written an editorial about Saddam Hussein's death. And this was one of the couple of times that I got called on the carpet by my boss. And he's like, you can't say anything negative about Saddam Hussein mm. in public. Like people will come after you. And again, this had never even occurred to me um, right. that there were people that loved him. Because um, here he was public enemy number one. Like yeah. it was Osama and then it was him. Like I can right. never remember. And I was, I'm 33. So when the, the two towers hit, uh, I think I was in like seventh grade. And so even being that young, I remember the coverage was like, the war on terror like these people are the enemy they are the worst they are the devil whatever you want to insert there that they were the worst and i like you would never would have assumed that there were people countries of people that love these guys yes and i mean sorry this is just a a funny aside to that Saddam Hussein story is that, you know, there's no alcohol in Yemen because the Yemenis don't drink. Um, they, they generally, you know, they're Muslim, they don't drink. Um, and that's fine. But, but some of us, the very tiny expat population there, um, we're interested in finding places where we could buy beer or mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. vodka, whatever. So 
I met some Dutch people and they said, oh, we know where we could go. And we, you have to drive outside of Sanaa up in the mountains, like a, an hour or two. And then you pull up at this shack in the middle of nowhere, like no identified, like I couldn't, I had no idea how they remembered this was where you go. It was this little random house on like a cliff in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. And we went and knocked on the door and inside the entire room was literally wallpapered with Saddam Hussein's face. Um, it was photos. The whole thing was set on. And then on the floor were lined up Heineken and Bell's whiskey and uh, wow. vodka. I mean, it was just bizarre. Um, you know, you can't imagine these things before you are actually there. No, um, not, no. <laughs> right. And so, and I, you also start to realize how other people see us as Americans. You start to realize oh, how we're perceived and you know, and my Yemenis talked to me a lot about the fact that, like, look, we have nothing against you as people. We just don't think you should be occupying any Muslim lands. So once you finally get out of Palestine and, you know, they don't even see Israel and the U.S. as separate countries. They're like, no, you're the same country as far as we're concerned. And until you're out of Palestine, you know, we will be. Right. Against. We got beef. Right. Exactly. Um, and, you know, and just kind of starting to see things from their perspective, like, yeah, mm -hmm. Americans are on Arab lands and. Oh, yeah. We meddle. <laughs> right. We meddle and like and we impose ourselves and we think we're the world's policemen. And, you know, it's like we have a countrywide problem of white savior complex. Like, you know, we are going to swoop in and save, save everybody. Yeah, exactly. And that's just generally like not what we do. Yeah. <laughs> The I, this analogy came to to mind, where you may have like a family, right, and you may have siblings that are fighting. We're gonna solve this. No one else is gonna come in, right? We don't need an outside party, even if it's somebody's best friend or whomever, some adult. Get out of here. We're gonna take care of our own business. That makes so much sense. Where you may have these countries, and this may be diluting it down to something that's not even close but you have these countries and even inside these countries you have these civil wars that happen all over the world but like they don't want people getting involved and this is our mess right let us figure it out but the the u.s is like the country that's like oh i gotta fix everybody's life i gotta go to this place i'm i'm the boss right what is that under i'm undercover boss i want <laughs> I'm restaurant impossible. I got to come save everybody. <laughs> exactly. And, and we want to go quote unquote, save people. We actually know nothing about. Yeah. You know, we know nothing about their values, their culture, their religion, their way of life, what matters to them. We mm -hmm. can't actually do a single thing for people we don't understand. You yeah. know, it's just, we can't. And, you know, and the other thing you know, like the U.S. thinks they're somehow fighting terrorism by sending drone strikes into Yemen to try to kill Al-Qaeda kingpins. Mm -hmm. um, but every time there was a drone strike in Yemen, it made the country hate us more, which put our security at greater risk than ever before. And it's like, every time there was a drone strike, I was like, oh no, you've just made my life as a foreigner here much- A little bit harder. A little bit harder and more dangerous. 
than it was before. And, you know, there's good reasons why these people hate you because you kill their children. Um, yeah. Man, uh, that's, wow. You talked about security and your life kind of being in danger. So I don't know if I stated this, but we have a, a, a kidnapping survivor. You actually survived a kidnapping where you were taken away and just, I mean, Jenny, go for it. I mean, please tell the story. This is one thing I have in my notes. We have to tell the kidnapping story. Okay. There is a version of it in my second book, The Ambassador's Wife, just, you know, mm-hmm. in case anyone wants to, it is kind of like it happened to me, although she's not pregnant. All right. So when I was six months pregnant, I went hiking with a group of women. I usually went hiking with a Yemeni group every Monday, every Monday. And I'd been in Yemen for three and a half years by this time. Mm-hmm. So I felt completely safe in Yemen for three and a half years. And that was probably a little naive as well. Um, but, you know, again, my Yemeni neighbors were the friendliest people I'd ever known. I felt, you know, I'd lived there a long time and nothing had happened to me. And I'd hiked all over the place and I'd traveled all over the country and nothing had ever happened to me. So I just have to preface the story with that because, again, I don't want Yemenis to be perceived as terrorists. Um, and it was not terrorists who came after me either. It was um, one crazy sheikh, one crazy local leader, and about seven of his men from his area. So we were mm-hmm. hiking. I was hiking with four other women from four other countries. There was a Romanian, a Brit, a French woman, and a Norwegian. Um, so we're from five different countries. Our only common language is French. So we've been speaking French. And we'd, we'd hiked in about two and a half hours from the road. So we left cars at the road and um, hiked in. And we'd sat down to eat lunch. And then I kind of I don't know if I could really have heard this, but this is my memory is that I heard the shake cock the gun. Like, um, so, and I look up and there's a, this man pointing an AK 47 at us. And we all stood up as fast as we possibly could. And we started walking away because we thought, okay, maybe we're trespassing on their land mm-hmm. and we should just get off, you know? Um, and we started walking away, but then my bodyguard, cause I had a bodyguard by then, my husband had 10 bodyguards and he couldn't leave the house without all of them. And everywhere he ever went had to be wrecked the day before, et cetera. But I had one bodyguard because that was my relative importance to my husband. Um, one tenth of his worth. Um, and again, you know, I have other stories about getting used to having a bodyguard, which is a deeply weird experience, but, um, but this bodyguard ended up saving my life. Um, so mm. bodyguards are not supposed to pull a weapon unless they have to. So you mm-hmm. never are the first to pull a weapon ever, ever, ever. You, it's a last resort thing. Oh, so these guys all had their guns out and pointed at us. My bodyguard was armed to the teeth. He had a backpack full of weapons and he never even reached for one. Um, but the first thing he did was call me back over. He said, you know, Jenny, come back over here and talk to the shake. And while it's counterintuitive to walk towards someone pointing a gun at you, mm-hmm. I was trained to do whatever my bodyguard told me to do, whatever he said. And so I did. And I told the other women, you have to come with me. We have to walk back over there. And, you know, my, my bodyguard saying we have to. And so they followed me, thankfully. And I went back over to the Sheikh and I said, Salam Alaikum, you know, peace be with you. Um, which is how you greet every Yemeni and, Mm -hmm. um, many other Muslims in other parts of the world. 
And the reply to that is always alaikum salam. And so that way you've both said, okay, we want you to, we want peace between us. We right. you cool. Let's talk. Right. Cool. But this Sheikh didn't say that. Uh-oh. And that's the first time in three and a half years that someone hadn't returned the greeting. Like the first time that's how rare it is. Everyone returns the greeting. And my bodyguard said he was upset. He's like, you didn't, you didn't alaikum salam her. And she's a woman and this isn't how we treat women and she's pregnant and blah, blah, blah. And the shake was like, I don't know. She's pregnant. You know, I was wearing my husband's clothes. They were very loose. My daughter was very small still. Um, and you know, I was looking at him and I don't know, but sometimes you can look in someone's eyes and realize they don't actually see you Mm. that maybe they are not entirely mentally stable or, but they don't, they don't see you as a human. You don't register as a human. Mm-hmm. You don't even really register as a life form. And he, that's how he was looking at me. Like he wasn't seeing me as a woman, as anything. I was, I meant nothing to him. Wow. And I've never actually seen that specifically in someone else's eyes. And that for me was the scariest part was realizing actually, I mean, my life means nothing to this man and he will have right. no problem killing me. And this was right after nine foreigners had been executed in the north of the country. Oh, man. Um, and so I thought, he's just going to line us up and kill us. That's it. We're done for. Um, and, you know, at some point in our exchange, um, because I wasn't getting very far, my bodyguard pulled me aside and the other woman had moved over to the other side of the hill. And he was like, let me do the arguing now. Um, and I thought, great, my bodyguard's Yemeni, right? So he's much better equipped to, to talk mm-hmm, to the mm-hmm. Meanwhile, so like still like on the campgrounds, y'all are just. So we're basically, we're on top of a mountain kind of. So we're on top of a mountain surrounded by other mountains and we are surrounded by eight men, including the Sheikh, um, holding AK-47s and so I remember one of them was like above us so he could point down at us. There were others mm-hmm. like on, but there were men on all sides. My bodyguard, whose name was Muhammad, um, not, not uncommon uh, in these parts. So he goes over to talk to the Sheikh and I went and joined the women. So the women were standing in a cluster kind of in the middle of this circle, kind of not knowing what to do with themselves. And I went over and they were all, the reason I'd been talking to the Sheikh was not only just because I was the one with the official bodyguard, um, they had some guards from Total, the French petroleum company, but they were not trained in dealing with situations like this. Uh, so I said, look, I need to call my husband and let him know what's happening. And I didn't have my phone. I'd lost it somehow in the shuffle, but I memorized his phone number. Thank goodness. So I, the Romanian woman had her phone. So I borrowed her phone and I rang him and I said, we're in trouble. And, you know, I was calling cause I was like getting upset. And like, I guess I thought he'd commiserate and be like, oh, sweetheart, that sounds so tough. Like, I'm sorry you're being held at gunpoint, which would not have been helpful, it turns out. Um, But that's not what he did at all. It was like I was calling to say, like, read me the weather report. And so he he said, where are you? Do you have a satellite phone? Where's Mohammed? Put him on the phone. Mm -hmm, Like, mm -hmm, absolutely mm -hmm. without any sentimentality. And I got, you know, gave the phone to Mohammed. My husband then, you know, I didn't, wasn't aware later what he was doing, but he got on the phone to the minister of the interior and said, here's where my wife is. Your people have him. I mean, have, Mm -hmm. have her and, you know, these other women. And, 
you need to do something about it. And then the minister of the interior right. called Mohammed to get on the phone with the Sheikh. I mean, there was a lot going on. Wow. Um, so they were kind of negotiating. And at some point they were trying to get cement in exchange for our release because cement is expensive in Yemen. It's mm. a building material and people want building materials. And anyway, so this went on for a long time. And there were various times at which they tried to get us to walk towards this house and they wanted us to go in the house. And I thought, I don't want to go in a house. That doesn't seem like a good idea. I don't, I don't want to be trapped in a small space. And so we were walking really slowly to get there, but at the same time, we couldn't say no, because they still had guns. And, and I guess, anyway, so the, and, and because they kept kind of changing their mind, they'd say, okay, we're going to let you go. And we'd get a few steps. They'd be like, no, just kidding. We're not letting you go. Um, oh, that's tough. Yeah, it happened like a bunch of times. And, but even before this happened, you know, the pivotal mm. moment for me was that I started having um, really strong contractions. So I was only six months pregnant. And I knew that if my daughter was born on that mountaintop in Yemen without any medical facilities anywhere nearby, that she would die. Mm. And quite possibly my own life would be in danger. I was 40 years old. I was not a young mother. Um, but I thought, oh my, I'm going to lose her. Like, I really, mm -hmm. really, really wanted this child. And I thought, I cannot lose her. I cannot lose her. And then I thought, stress brings on premature labor. I am stressed. And so, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it is my own stress that is going to make me lose my daughter. And so I thought, okay, well, how can I not be stressed? Clearly, I can't really do anything about the men with guns right now. So what I... <laughs> What I can do is try to think of, okay, what makes me not stressed? And there are very few things, incidentally, that make me not stressed. But um, the only thing I could think of, because I'd done a lot of yoga, like I did fertility yoga and then pregnancy yoga. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, well, the breathing I learned in yoga, that's supposed to calm me down, like long, slow breaths, like the Ujjayi breathing, where you breathe through your nose. And I just thought, I'll try that. I have nothing else. That's what mm -hmm. I have. And so I did that. And I said to Theodora, stay in, stay in, stay in over and over and over and explain to her that it wasn't safe for her to come out. And meanwhile, like also doing the yoga breathing and like, and eventually, yeah. you know, the contractions slowed down and, and stopped. Um, wow. They probably didn't. Yeah. I mean, it took a while, but it also helped that I have to say the other women who were, who were taken hostage with me, Mm -hmm. were amazing. Wow. Like not one of them, not one became hysterical or cried or was irrational or had a breakdown. Every single one of them was calm, was absolutely yeah. rational, was resourceful. And they were very protective of me because I was pregnant. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think, you know, I couldn't have asked for a better women to be, to be held hostage with. Um, but yeah, they were they were an incredible group of women. I mean, they'd lived all over the world. They'd, some of them had been held yeah. at gunpoint before. So they were like, ah, this is nothing. We've lived in Nigeria. And, you know, this is not the first time. Um, so how, how, did it, how did it end? Like y'all are just kind of standing around for hours. And so what was the breaking point to where y'all were able to be released? Well, finally, um, they did finally, I don't know what was negotiated. I think there's things that we still don't know about what went on between the minister of the interior and the sheikh or what was promised the sheikh in return for releasing us or 
I mean, the UK and the US don't pay ransom ransoms. So we knew that the UK hadn't paid a ransom and uh, France too uh, did not pay a ransom for us. So we're not quite sure what convinced them to let us go. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but eventually my bodyguard came back to us and said, okay, they're letting us go and I need you to walk fast. And I was like, like I mean, you know, yeah, let's get out of here. and I was fast, <laughs> you know, I have never walked so fast in my life. Um, I was way out, way out ahead. I was like, I, I'm walking so fast. So we walked about, I don't know how long we walked. We walked for maybe half an hour. And then the French had sent some pickup trucks to get us. So the, the French pickup trucks came up and threw us all in the back of the pickup trucks and drove us down to the road, which is where I met Tim's bodyguards who took me back to the residence where right. the head of Tim's team and Tim were waiting outside the gates for me. And Tim, like looking completely calm, dry eyed, you know, whereas the, his head, the head of his bodyguards was like in floods of tears, you know, having just seen his entire career, like almost go up in smoke. He was like, if, if I'd lost like, you know, the ambassador's wife, that would have been a problem for me. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty much done. Uh, I guess I got to find a new job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But they, you know, they were brilliant, brilliant. And the bodyguard who was with me, Mohammed Al-Jabbar, he won an award for that. And Man, I mean, you've you've had some really great people in your circle and just be around and be a part of your life. I definitely don't think that is coincidence. I don't really believe in coincidences. I'm one of those everything happens for a reason people. Uh, but regardless of what you believe, you've had some amazing people in your life and you've had so many great stories that you have written a number of books. So our, our next number here is four. And the ambassador's wife is one of them, which is about your, your time as, you know, being married, married to the wonderful Tim, like shout out to Tim. He's awesome. <laughs> Although the ambassador's and, wife, oh, sorry, go on. Go, go, go. No, I just want to point out that that book, although the first scene is based on my kidnapping, the story itself is fictional. Um, there mm, okay, are definitely okay. elements of Tim and myself in those characters, but it is a fictional story. Whereas fiction like, based yeah. on a true story, right. somewhat loosely, somewhat very loosely, <laughs> very very loosely, different ending entirely. Anyway, go on. <laughs> well, you've written, I think, three books and contributed to another, right? And your most recent book is Exile Music, and we could literally do an entire podcast just on exile music and the other books that you've written. Uh, but I want, I want to, cause you were an actor as well. So you have this creative mind and you're willing to do like these, I don't know, these really things where you kind of have to get out there. You got to put yourself in a space to, to kind of think outside the box. So I know we've been on here for a while now. Uh, so as much as you can, just talk about your creative process and how that works in these different mediums. Because you're a speaker, you're you've acted, you write. So how does that how does that work? They're also different. I mean, what's interesting is that even with writing, the way that my creative process worked for each book was different. Mm. Um, so, and I think I can say this pretty briefly. But my first book, 
uh, The Woman Who Fell From The Sky was a memoir about just one year of my life. And it was just about the year running the newspaper in Yemen. Um, so the inspiration for that, my creative process there was the whole year I was running the newspaper, I kept a journal. I had 1,200 pages by the time Whoa. I finished that That's year. like a Harry Potter book. Well, right, exactly. Um, I mean, granted, my editor made me cut most of that. Um, so then I, I had raw material to turn into, but I mean, it was largely Kokob and my other reporters that they were the spark that made me think, I need the rest of the world to know about these people. I want, in particular, I wanted readers in the US to meet the Yemenis that I met because they were not seeing them in the media because the media only writes about Yemenis as terrorists. And so my inspiration was, I want people to see Yemenis as people, not as terrorists. And I want that's them to awesome. specifically like know the Yemenis I worked with. So that's that was my first book. My second book, I'd always planned on becoming a novelist, not a memoirist. It was only that writing the newspaper, it gave me material that was too good to let go to waste. Um, and so then I started writing a novel. But the other reason I started writing a novel rather than another memoir was because I just moved in with Tim and everything was very interesting there. Like we had people from Scotland Yard in our guest bedrooms and ministers mm -hmm. and all sorts of crazy stuff going on in our house. And I couldn't write about any of that truthfully mm. because it's secret. Um, so unless I wanted to ruin my marriage and or my husband's career or both, um, you know, I had to, if I wanted to write anything set in the world of diplomacy, I had to write fiction. Mm -hmm. So right. that's- That makes sense. Right. And so I just, I wanted to write because I found it so weird. The whole world of diplomacy is so- weird and fascinating and and definitely worth investigating on more than one level um but i you know so i and again i would write a completely different book now because you know it's been that was a long time ago that was when i was first married to tim and i hardly knew anything about the life of a diplomat compared mm. to what i know now um and also i hadn't been separated from my family twice or had lots of other things right happen. the story has so much yeah. so many more layers so many things to add to it now right right so i mean part of that creative practice i mean so I started with the kidnapping because I had a rough draft of it. So that's where it began. Mm -hmm. And that, that creative practice was just me asking a series of what if questions. So I started with what if they hadn't let me go? What if I'd left a toddler at home? What if I was handed a starving Yemeni child? What if I'd previously been teaching art to a group of Yemeni women. What if, and so I, I kept asking That's those good. questions and then writing the answers. And that book has kind of a weird structure. And so I wrote it in little scenes that I then kept shuffling around and putting them in different order. Um, and, but a scene would just come to me and I'd say, okay, well, what if you're handed a starving child? Okay, write the starving child scene and then mm. see where that goes. Um, because this was my first novel and I was kind of feeling around with the structure and right. And then how long did it take? How many of those separate scenes did you have before you go? Okay. I think I have like a kind of a book here. Oh, that's a good question. I don't seem to be able to put out a book in under five years. Um, it takes a long time. I mean, cause all my books have required an, a lot of research I wrote the memoir the fastest because I knew the story, I knew the material. Um, the Ambassador's Wife took me five years. It was very slow, um, partly because I'd given birth to my daughter about two weeks before I started writing it. Um, so there were some distractions. 
Um, you know, adorable <laughs> to say small the least. child. Yeah, to say the least. And we moved a few times. We moved from Yemen to Jordan to London, then to Bolivia before I finished that book. Mm -hmm. um, and then, um, so that it was probably five years from the time I started it to the time it was out. And then Exile Music was completely and totally different. So, okay, talk about it. Right. So I got the idea for Exile Music from originally from my husband, whose job had taken us to Bolivia. So we lived in Bolivia for four years. Again, totally 100% different from Yemen. Different religion, different indigenous people, different customs, different everything. everything. <laughs> wonderful. Everything was what I mean, everything's wonderful when when you get to a new country. And anyway, so but Tim came home from work one day and said, did you know there are about 20,000 Jewish refugees living here around World War II? And I did not. I had read many Jewish novels that took place in other parts of South America in Argentina, Brazil, Venezuela, Chile, but I hadn't read anything about the Jewish diaspora in Bolivia at all. Um, and I hadn't read much of anything about Klaus Barbie's time in Bolivia, um, who was one of the most horrific Nazis, because um, of course, Nazis followed the Jews to South America. Oh and gosh, come on. I know. Like, <laughs> I know. And so yeah, that was part of that was part of, you know, my reaction was like, hang on, you lose everyone you love, you lose your home, your profession, your money, um, you're grieving, you travel all the way around the world, you finally think you found safety, and then the Nazis show up? Are you kidding me? Um, and like one of the men I met there whose parents fled Europe in 1939, 1940, around then, um, he ran into Class Barbie a couple times on the street. Like Klaus Barbie tried to talk to his children and like his bodyguard once threatened my friend, John. And so John had experienced running into Nazis on the street. And I just thought that is crazy. Um, I could not imagine. Yeah, I could not either, but I thought it was important that someone did. Um, and since yes. there, you know, there were plenty of memoirs that have been written, you know, true stories, but they were, they're memoirs that, um, well, Leo Spitzer's memoir, Hotel Bolivia, is beautiful. He grew up there till he was 10 and then he left. But there was not there was not any novels. And I was at first wondering if I should write it as nonfiction. But most of the survivors are dead. I did interview survivors. But by the time at which I interviewed them, there were a lot of gaps in what they remembered and in parts of their lives or in trying to remember their initial reactions to things. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I thought, if I write this as nonfiction, I'm not sure it will be as moving as it could be because there'll right, be so many right. gaps and I may not be able to even create a full picture of a person or mm -hmm. create a whole picture of their world or what's happened to them. And so I thought, well, with fiction, what I can do is use, shape the narrative in a way to manipulate my readers um, in the best way possible. Um, but also what I tried to do is research it so extensively that anyone who had lived through it would recognize their experience in some way, would recognize mm, okay. my, my descriptions of their experience. Um, and so that took five years of research. You know, I was researching that book right up till the day it came out. And, you know, it required wow. research in Bolivia, research in Vienna, research in Genoa. I even went to Genoa so I could see the last view that my family that I was writing about had mm -hmm. of Europe. Um, wow, that's before, dedication. Before they, yeah, yeah, I know. I was like, you know, 
Research. I have to go do research in Italy. Yeah, it just happens to have really great, you know, really great food and, you know, um, yeah. But uh, I did have actual reasons for going there, but I did get to go to some nice places. Vienna wasn't half bad either. Um, and of course, we lived, we all lived in Bolivia for four years. But, um, but, you know, it was really so many people helped me with that book. My acknowledgments page is a million pages long. I did so much research for that book. But you know, music was of interest to me because my friend John was a violinist. And then the Vienna Philharmonic was just criminal in the way they treated their musicians. They expelled all their Jewish musicians, many of whom died in the camps, others of whom had to flee into exile, um, some of whom starved to death. It's just, wow. you know, and that this orchestra continued to employ Nazis until 1967. That's not that long ago. No, that's, that's the year crazy. before I was born. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, and so I felt like this has not been written about enough. This needs to be written yeah, about a lot. the story needs to be told. Yeah, it felt like a really important story. And, you know, I wasn't sure whether I was the best person to write it or not, but it just seemed like, I don't know, it was compelling to me. And those are the kind of stories I want to tell. And I did have... Bolivian journalists and some of my Aymara friends read the book before it was published mm -hmm. to, you know, to let me know if I'd done anything idiotic and musical people let me know if I'd made ridiculous musical errors, which I did incidentally a lot. And I would really look like a fool if, if all these people hadn't read my book beforehand and corrected, you know, so anything I get right, I get right because of my sources, but. Um, Another time, yeah. great people, great people yeah. around you. Great people around me. I cannot have asked for for better people to help me. And two weeks after that book came out, two weeks after, I was in London under lockdown, and I got a note from a ninety year old man who lives in Florida, and he said, "I just finished Exile Music, and your book is so close to my own experience that I really don't know how you made it up." And for me, that was like my job. That's is it. Done. <laughs> That's it. That's it. That's um, what I set out to do. Yeah, that was what I set out to do. Wow, so. you were able to get enough facts, enough research, and then you were able to create enough of the book to piece it all together to where people can get in a great enough picture of what the experience was like. And you got that confirmation from someone who actually lived through it. I mean, I mean, what else? What else is there to do? I'm excited. I haven't even read the book. <laughs> okay. Before we get out. Here. Wow. I mean, this, I still have so many questions and I knew that this would happen. We talked about this earlier on here. I end every interview with my three what's. So you can make these answers kind of as long or as short as you want to make. So my first one is in your field or outside of it, what's an opinion you have that will be considered unpopular? I know you said you had something good for this. one. Oh, okay. But I didn't realize the in my field, I'd missed the in my field part. It doesn't have to be in your inside or outside of your field. You can go anywhere you want. Can I just tell something that's so completely unrelated to my field entirely? Go for it. Like it's an opinion. I'm probably no. So my unpopular opinion, which my husband, you know, will repeatedly explain to me why this 
wouldn't work. But my unpopular opinion is that I think fossil fuels should be outlawed tomorrow globally, like outlawed, just outlawed full stop. We stop now, get off the drugs, um, you know, and we, and I understand this will be a huge crisis. This will create a huge crisis, right? But we have the technology to create energy without fossil fuels. We just don't invest in it. And I feel like only if we just outlaw fossil fuels tomorrow, will we be forced to invest in solar power? I mean, there are large parts of the world that are uninhabited desert. You just spread out the solar panels and you've got a whole country wired, you know, but we're not doing that because the petroleum industry is such a stranglehold on our countries. Um, And if we outlawed fossil fuels, I mean, it would change our diplomatic relationships with many Mm -hmm. countries. And I'm not going to mention any names because my husband works as a diplomat, but um, (laughs) I just think like we need to wean ourselves from these. These are bad for every one of us, for our children. Like this is what we have to do. So there's my unpopular opinion. And now everyone can call in and say how wrong I am. Um, (laughs) Man, I mean, clearly it's been written about, it's been, Ad nauseum, it's been reported that we need to get away from fossil fuels. And there is clearly technology in place to be able to do it. But like you said, it's really all about the money. That's it. That's really it. So, um, yeah, I'm with you on that one. Okay. What number two? This one might be hard, or it may not be. If you weren't an author... What field would you work in? Oh, see that that is easy for me because my first my first incarnation was as an actor. You know, that's the theater's my I still walk into every time I walk into a theater, I'm like, oh I'm home. Um oh, it just like it smells right to me. But actually in the dressing room, it's like if I am in a dressing room somewhere or an empty theater and I'm like, or on an empty stage, I'm like, this is this is home yeah. and it's not, it's not performing. I miss it's rehearsing. Uh, oh, cause that's the creative process. That's where everything is worked out. That's where yeah. you can spitball yeah. and say, ah, you know, let me, let me do this again. Uh, let me change it here. Let me turn this way. Let me turn that way. And it's, it's the communal aspect, you know, it, it you know, the, the way, the, where you're all solving problems together, you, the director, yes. your fellow actors, it really is a, it's a group art and, I miss that so much. I miss the kind of community that forms every time you're in a play. It's it's a it's like a family and writing is lonely and moving around the world mm-hmm. constantly is lonely. And so I'm constantly struggling with feelings of isolation and loneliness and I really miss the community of the theater. Jenny, I found this to be so true. Many other people have said this before. And that's why you see pro athletes when they get out of athletics, they're like, I don't have the locker room anymore. I don't have that community. And where that that hits home for me is once you get out of high school, once you get out of college, it's hard to find those avenues in which you have this community of people where you're working together, striving towards a goal that is bigger than you. Unless you have like a workspace that is like that. But again, with work, you know, people come and go. Some people hate it. When you're on the team or when you're in a play, like everybody wants to be there. Everybody's pulling in the same direction. 
and everybody is is working together and problem solving. I've never been in any films or done theater or anything, but I am so fascinated and would love to honestly do it. Like <laughs> one of these days, you know, I guess when I become some big shot or whatever, maybe, you know, somebody will invite me and say, hey, man, why don't you try this out? I would I would love to somehow find my way into being on stage. I, I just find it so so fascinating. It looks so fun. So I could do just more stuff on just talking about acting. Yeah, no, I mean, I think you've described it really well. I mean, the way, you know, that you're all, you're all trying to create something together. And that is different. I mean, I've got literary community. I have friends who are writers who I value enormously, but we do the work alone. Mm -hmm. You know, Um, and the joy is always in the work for me, like (sighs) work itself. Like, I don't care about going for a drink afterwards. I just love the work. Yes. Yes. Oh, man. I'm, oh, man. I just have so much. We, we could go on for three hours. Okay. All right. Last yeah. what? Last what? All right. All right. Here we go. What advice would you give to someone in high school? So if I were to take this back to my kids, because I am a high school teacher, and I were to play this, what advice would you give them? My advice would be, at some point in your life, the earlier, the better, I would say, find a way to move at least temporarily to some place that forces you to question all of your assumptions about the world, somewhere that challenges everything you believe, somewhere mm-hmm. that has nothing in common with where you are now. And that could be somewhere else in the U.S., you know, I mean, mm-hmm. there's certainly many, many different places in the oh, U.S., yeah. Yeah. So it does, you don't have to go far, but maybe it means like my goddaughter, Hannah was just visiting and she did these work stay. Um, This is how she got around Europe. You know, she saved her money from the time she was nine years old as well. But she also, once she bought the airfare, she works, she's working her way around Europe right now. You know, you sign up to do four hours of work a day for a farmer, for I don't know, you can build a fence for a Norwegian guy or um, pick strawberries on a farm and you do four hours of work a day and then you get free room and board and you're in a culture that's different and you're being fed different foods and you're coming in contact with beliefs that are different from yours. And I feel that we could all stand to be confronted with beliefs that are different from ours and understand that they are not any more or less valid than our own beliefs. Oh, man. I mean, you. You couldn't have said that better. And I think that is the perfect way to end it. Challenge your own belief system. Challenge what you believe. And either you're going to go stronger in that belief, or you may start to understand some things maybe need to change for you. So Jennifer Style, Jenny, as I have affectionately called you for this episode, (laughs) This has been a treat. I know that my listeners are going to appreciate what we've created here, our episode. This was amazing. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a lot of fun. I could definitely keep talking. (laughs) (laughs) So signing off for Jenny, I am your host, Tony Rambles. Make sure you guys go follow Jenny. Jenny, please tell everybody where they can find your books where they can where they can follow you where they can see your stuff go ahead and plug it for me 
Okay, you can find all of my books um, at bookshop.org or on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or most places books are sold. Or you could go to your local independent bookstore and ask them to order it if they don't already have it in stock. Um, my website is jenniferstyle.net. So Jennifer and then my surname, S-T-E-I-L.net. Jenniferstyle.net. And so I am also on Instagram at Jennifer F. Style. I'm on Twitter um jf style seven and uh i'm also on facebook jennifer style or jennifer f style i have two pages they were supposed to be separated between personal and professional but there's just too much overlap so they're both (laughs) i don't know (laughs) contact me anywhere (laughs) well guys uh that is it for us make sure you pick up exile music there we go. I'm, I was looking for it in my notes, trying to be all professional. Make sure you guys go pick up Exile Music um, and the other books, The Woman Who Fell Out of the Sky and The Ambassador's Wife. All great work. Thank you all. And I will see you in the next minute.